right, well, good morning, Doxa. Man, it is really good to see you guys today. If you're new or visiting, checking this out, my name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here, but uh, as you can tell with all the decor and the Christmas songs and all that stuff, we are shifting gears as we prepare for Christmas. And, and today is actually a, a pretty big deal in the history of, of the church, and not just Doxa Church, but we're talking like the, the global churches. Today, as we mentioned, starts the, the Advent season, which ultimately leads us, points us, and prepares us to, to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, which is ultimately what, what Christmas is all about, what we're preparing, and, and what the world stops for as we, we celebrate Christmas. But, but maybe if you're anything like me and you didn't grow up in or around the church, maybe you're asking the, the really good question of, what the heck is, is Advent, right? Maybe your experience with Advent is like you eat a bunch of nasty candy from those cheap little calendars that you get at like Hy-Vee or something like that, right? It's like, believe it or not, there's actually something more significant to Advent. I know it's gonna blow some of your minds, but Advent is, is kind of a big deal. And, and so here's what you need. We could tend, spend a ton of time talking about Advent and what it is. We're not gonna do that, but I will say this. Here's what you need to know. Advent simply means that something wonderful is coming. This is what Advent is. It's ultimately about hope. And the Latin word Adventus comes from the Greek word parousia, which literally just means the coming of Jesus. And it, and it references two things. It references the coming of Jesus in hum, human flesh, which we celebrate with the incarnation at, at Christmas time. But it also points us to this, his second coming, which we wait for as Christians, for Jesus to come back and we wait for the restoration of all things where, where sin is gone, where evil is, is done with, and we live in paradise and bliss in, in the presence of, of God. And so Advent really is just a, a four-week block of time leading up to Christmas that started sometime between the second and the fourth century that really is just to, to prepare our hearts to just really treasure and celebrate Jesus. And, and it's kind of like this, okay? You guys have, have undoubtedly heard, you've, you've sang the, the famous Christmas carol, Joy to the World, okay? And as you sing that song, and as you sing so many of these Christmas songs, and I, and I hope over the next couple of weeks as we sing these songs, you, you pick up on some of the language. That oftentimes we just kind of breeze through these songs and don't think about what we're actually singing. But we get Advent language in, this, in these songs like Joy to the World and so many other songs. In Joy to the World, I'm not going to sing it, but I'll read it. All right, the words say this, okay? Let every heart prepare him room. You guys remember singing that song? This is Advent language. And guys, this is really what we're doing for the next few weeks before we celebrate Christmas. We're preparing our hearts. We're, we're giving room in our lives to celebrate Jesus. And, and really the way that we're gonna do that here at Doxa is just to continue our study through the Gospel of Luke as we've been gathering every single week for the last couple months, we've been just working through the Gospel of, of Luke which reveals Jesus in such a way that's good news for all people. And so we're gonna be in Luke chapter nine today, all right? And, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna get through this and then we're, for the next three weeks, we're gonna actually kind of rewind the script a little bit. And we're gonna go back to Luke chapter one and two where we're gonna look at the birth narrative of, of Jesus, this man that, that the whole world seems to stop and celebrate at Christmas time. And as we continue to examine the man Jesus, guys, we're gonna see this theme of hope emerge. And hope is one of those words, right? You, you see like the hope graphic and the Christmas stuff and you're like, okay, this is great. You're playing with emotions and all that stuff and that's, that's cute. It's on every Christmas card and all that stuff. Because it is, it, it, it is stupid apart from Jesus. Hope is this very real thing that is available to all of us and the gospel of Luke is just screaming that. There's good news, there is hope for all people. 
And as we get into this, okay, the very nature of Advent, guys, it demands us to just really just simply ask a question. And the Advent question is this, and I want you to write this down in your Bible if you're already at Luke 9 on your program, whatever you're taking notes on. The Advent question is this, is what child is this? All right, what child is this? It's a question that's, that's asked so many different ways throughout the Gospel of Luke. It's what the disciples asked in Luke chapter 8 as Jesus calmed the storm. They, they saw him do this miracle, and all of a sudden they looked at Jesus, and they're like, who is this man? Right? It's the question that King Herod asks. It's the question that, that the crowds around Jesus, as they're listening to him, they're watching him, they're asking the same question. It's the question that people throughout the history of the world have been asking, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Who is this child? It's the question that, quite honestly, if we're real, there's probably some of us in here that are asking that same question this morning. Who is Jesus? And guys, this is a great question that's going to help us to prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas. But it's not only a great question, guys, but I want you to know that it is really the question. Meaning this, all right? It's the most significant question that you will ever ask and that you will ever answer. Who is Jesus? And I, and I know that this can be like pastoral hyperbole and you're like, okay, he's going to get all dramatic. But guys, it really is. And I want to show you this because here's why this is so important, guys. Everything in your life hinges on the answer to this question. It really does. It affects your current reality. It affects your view of spirituality. It affects your, your future destiny. Who is this man? Who is this, who is this child? And so if you're a Christian here and, and you're thinking, okay, well, man, I thought this was going to maybe be a little deeper Advent series, but we're going to start off with who is Jesus. I get it, right? I learned that in Docs of Kids. He's God. Yay. You get a Sunday school badge, right? Whatever. I want to I push you a little bit and, and say, maybe that's the, the wrong mindset. Maybe that's the wrong heart posture. All right, because Advent invites you to actually consider what that means for you. What does it mean in your life that Jesus is God, if that's your answer? Are you living like that? Does this, is this affecting your life? Is, is Jesus like elf on the shelf, right, that you just put in the, a shelf in your life, or does he sit on the throne of your heart? How does this impact you? And even if you're here and you're kind of just exploring the, the doxa family and you're exploring like the man Jesus, I'm super glad that you're here. I love teaching you the Bible. It's my prayer that as you journey with us through this Advent series that, that God would just open your eyes, that you would come to see Jesus as I've seen Jesus, as millions of people around the world see Jesus, and you would come to the, the life-changing, eternity-altering understanding and answer to that question. And so with that introduction, let's just get to work, okay? So if you're not there yet, Luke chapter 9, grab your Bible, all right? If you don't have a Bible and you're visiting, on your way out, you can grab one. This is part of what we do as we gather as doxa. We just open up the Bible and we, and we read together and wrestle with what he has to say to us. And so as you get there, guys, I'll say this, okay? Up until this point, we've established that Luke is a physician, he's a historian, and he's been giving us really just kind of a, a meticulous recording of the history of people's reactions to Jesus, that he has been recording these interactions that Jesus has had with people and, and the reaction to his message, the, the reaction that they're having to all the miracles that they're seeing. And, and really, Luke is recording the questions revolving around Jesus's identity. And, and this is the issue for us today, okay? It's, it's Jesus's identity. And really, this is, the, this is the Christmas Advent issue. Again, who is Jesus? Who is this child? And so as we get into this, okay, Luke chapter 9, here's what you need to know. Through this section of Luke, we basically see two things, all right? Number one, we're going to see the identity of Jesus revealed to us. And then number two, we're going to see the faith response of somebody who receives 
this type of revelation, okay? So we'll start in this passage, right where this passage starts with the identity of Jesus. So verse 18 is where we're going to get. And, and when we talk about the identity of Jesus, okay, Luke gives us two scenes, all right, that are, is going to reveal this to us. So scene one begins in verse 18. Let's read that. This is what we see. Now it happened that his, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? I want you to circle the word crowds. That's an important one. And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others say that one of the prophets of old has risen. He then said to them, and, and underline this part, this is a big one, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, the Christ of God. Now guys, here's what's, what's going on. This is actually a major turning point in the gospel of Luke. All right, this is like the first time that any person confesses Jesus as the Christ. That up until this point, we see demons confess that Jesus is God, but this is the first time that any person has confessed Jesus as the Christ. And, and here is what Jesus does. He, he asks them a question, right? and he says, who do the crowds say that I am? And, and you need to know, guys, the, the word crowds that Luke frequently uses throughout his gospel, he uses it very intentionally because as Luke is writing this historical account, he's realizing that there's, there's masses of people that are following Jesus. And the word crowd points out the, this mass of uncommitted people who are following Jesus, they're listening to Jesus, but they're not necessarily loving Jesus and following Jesus. Okay, there's, there's a big difference. And because there's such this, this large crowd of uncommitted people who didn't really listen to Jesus that well. As a result, they're just confused about who he actually was. And because of this confusion, just a number of, of rumors and suggestions about his identity started to emerge, all right? If you read, look back, the people started saying that he was John the Baptist, risen from the dead, all right? Other people said that he was Elijah, that was reappearing after being dead for like eight centuries, okay? So all these people, they're just, they're just confused. They're making all these suggestions, and D Jesus is basically breaking into his disciples' life and asking the really personal question, okay, I understand what all these people are saying. Let me see if you've been listening well. If you remember back to Luke chapter eight, this idea that Jesus says, listen well. He's saying, did you get it? Have you been seeing me for who I am? And, and Doxa, I'd ask you that question. Like as you've been gathering here, are you listening well? Are you listening in a way that you see Jesus for he, who he actually is? Because Jesus is saying, this is a big deal. And these people that were surrounding him, as they heard him, they didn't really listen to him well. And they were perplexed about his identity. All right, look back to, to verse 7 in chapter 9. This will demonstrate this. We see this, this interaction with, with King Herod, okay? It says in verse 7, Now Herod, the Tetrarch, okay, this is Herod the king, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. I want you to underline that in verse 7. He was perplexed. He was just confused. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, by others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And this is what Herod said. Herod said, John, I beheaded. Okay, so you could see him. Like, people are saying, well, this is, might be John. This might be Elijah. And, and Herod's like wrestling with this. He's like, well, it's definitely not John because I killed him. Okay, and I know what he looks like. So this has got to be someone else. And what does he say? But who is this about whom I hear such things? He's hearing all these amazing things. And so what did he do? He sought to see him. Now, as I read this, and I've been considering this even in my life, I wonder how many of you and how many of us are like Herod. And here's what I mean by that. Herod wants to see Jesus 
because he heard about him and he heard about all, all the miracles that he was doing. Really, Herod is, is just wanting to, to show up for the show. And he just wants to be around Jesus and, and really just kind of see what's happening because everybody's talking about it. And Herod really just gives us this picture of someone today who's almost just like they trivialize Jesus. They treat him and, and really even the church as just another club or type of experience that we have in our daily lives. And they, and they just want to be a part of it. And they say, okay, well, it's not that big of a deal, but I'll be part of this because there seems to be something happening over here. And, and while likely Herod, guys, he probably really respected Jesus for being a prophet and a miracle worker, he doesn't go far enough. All right, this isn't, this isn't it. You know, for example, there's, there's other religions that, that really give Jesus respect, that respect Jesus as a, as a man of God, but they don't, they deny his claim to actually bring us to God. Herod is, is kind of like in this position. But let me, I gotta ask you this, if Jesus is teaching is considered good and, and Jesus is, is worthy of respect, can his most basic claim of being God be ignored? No. Like if he's not, guys, if he's not God, we need to throw it all away. We need to get out of here because Paul says in Corinthians that we're fools. We're wasting our time. We're wasting our lives. We're wasting our money. Like do, do something else with your life. It doesn't make any sense. And guys, I say this because there's some of you here that maybe you've been coming around the church, and not even just Doxa, because we've only been around for a couple months, but maybe you've been, have a church history that you, you go around, and you need to move beyond examining, respecting, and admiring Jesus to worshiping, loving, and trusting Jesus. You need to make that move. And even those of us who you would call yourself a Christian, I think it's so easy to, to move past this, this worship component and loving Jesus and you, you say yes to Jesus, you hear the gospel for the first time and your life just changes and you're like, oh my gosh, like everything is about Jesus, right? And, and then all of a sudden, like you kind of just get used to him, right? And he becomes like, the, oh yeah, he's, he's a good guy. And, and we lose kind of that, that fervor. I think this is why Paul talks about letting our spiritual fervor continue to grow and serve the Lord. But think about that statement that Peter makes. Jesus is the Christ. How does that impact your life, guys? Like, do you sit here at that statement and you hear that? And are you sitting there just in worship, wonder, awe, and praise? If not, like, why? I experienced this last night. My, there was a, there's a show called, like, The Star. It's like this, like, uh, I don't even know, like a cartoon type thing for, for kids about, like, the Jesus narrative and stuff. And I didn't, usually those things are not very good, but we were watching it just because I wanted my kids to be quiet and stuff. And so I was like, I'm going to put on a theological lens and view this. But it actually was, like, really good. But it's, like, really weird because it's, like, the Jesus birth narrative through the lens of animals, right? So these animals, like, talk and stuff. Anyway, long story short, I found, Lisa and I found ourselves sitting on the couch last night watching this as the kids went to bed because we were just captivated by the reality that God came to us. And when you realize that Jesus is the Christ, God incarnate, it does something in you. It leads you to worship and wonder and awe and praise, and it just, it just takes you over. Guys, this is the response that we have. Do you have that? Or have you become so used to that statement that it's really not like worshipful anymore for you? Where are you? Like, where are you in, in terms of that? Where are you in, in your, your view of Jesus? Are you part of like the uncommitted crowd that was maybe following Jesus, that was 
kind of like listening to them. They're not hearing very well. Are you part of like the Herod type posture of like you just been swept up in the show, right? A, a new church plant comes and they have great band. They have a mediocre pastor and like, right? They, 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 you just want to be around some stuff because you met some docs of people and they're like, man, they're really nice. They talk to me. No one at work talks to me. I'll come to them. I'll, I'll hang out, right? Are you just kind of swept up in like what you see happening? Or are you beholding the truth that Jesus is the Christ? Because I want you to know this, guys. That confession that Peter makes is the only one that places him as he truly is. The promised savior for broken, messed up, sinful people like us. This is why, if you, if you remember this account in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that Peter's confession is the rock on which he will build the church on. Because Peter rightly understood that Jesus is the only foundation that, that can be laid a life of faith. And, and some people will, will try our very best We'll get caught up in, in religion, which is just simply just confidence in the works of our flesh. We'll, we'll try and build a life and sustain a life of faith on things besides Jesus. But what we need to realize, guys, is that true life starts with and is sustained by Jesus and the confession that he is, in fact, the Christ. And so we're seeing here with Peter, theologically speaking, the most important, significant statement made in Luke's gospel to this point that Jesus is the Christ, he's God. And this is emphatically clear, but Luke gives us another scene to con consider. And I think like part of this, this is speculation on my part, okay? But we're just like stupid, sinful people, right? That we can hear something one time, but that doesn't mean we're gonna get it, right? I, I, I'm like that type of person. Like you have to tell me something like four different times and I'm like, oh yeah, right? But Luke gives us two scenes to basically show us, okay, I just told you like emphatically, Jesus is the Christ and like, Peter confessed that, and I said, good job. Now, I'm going to tell you again in a different way. And the second scene starts in verse 28. Look at this. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And I'll just pause there, guys. This was a regular habit. Luke highlights this a lot throughout his gospel, that Jesus got away alone. And, and I say that because you need that. I need that. We need this in our church. We need to be with Jesus. We can't get so caught up in ministry activity, we forget to be with the Father. And Jesus constantly and consistently throughout his life rhythms would go off and be with the Father. That he would go and pour himself out in ministry, but then he would pull himself out of ministry to be renourished and, and, and reinvigorized and energized and, and just taken care of by the Father. Because you need this. As you're walking through life, as you're trying to be a good husband, as you're trying to be a good parent, as you're trying to, to be a good member of the church, you can't forget to be with Jesus, with the Father. Get with him. Let him speak to you. Jesus, he goes to do this, verse 29, and as he's praying, he's just enjoying communion and union with the Father. He's praying, and what happens? The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white, that he appears in glory, okay? And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. I want you to circle those two names. They're, they're significant in understanding this. Verse 31, they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. I want you to circle that as well. We'll come back to that. Which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So we have Jesus. He's on the mountain praying. He's got his three guys, his three leaders of the church. Okay, he's there. And then Moses and Elijah show up out of nowhere. And I'm not sure how we know it's Moses and Elijah. Like maybe they had name tags or a hat that says Moses. I don't really know. But they show up in glory, okay? And, they and they're there, right? 
And at this point, you know, Moses and Elijah, guys, they've been dead for a really, really long time. Very long time. But I want you to notice how they appear. How do they appear? They appear in glory. And, and guys, that might not seem like a big deal. But at this point in human history, guys, it's been hundreds of years since the glory of God had been revealed to people. That here we, we see throughout the Old Testament how the glory of God is revealed to people. Right? It's, it's revealed to, to Moses on the mountain. It's revealed, you know, we see this with Elijah and Isaiah. Right? They, they, they see the glory of God. It's been hundreds of years since the glory of God was, was revealed to people. And here on this mountain in the middle of nowhere with this carpenter who is a nobody in people's eyes, that people were asking, who is this? Like, I'm confused. Who is this person? All of the sudden, in glory, Jesus is unveiled and revealed. And I want you to know this. Write this in the column of your Bible, that Jesus is the glory of God. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Colossians. He says that he's the image of the invisible God, that when you see Jesus, you see God. This is what's happening here. And here's what we're to understand by seeing this, okay? When it comes to Moses, all right, Moses lived around 1,400 years, all right, before this moment, and Elijah was around 900 years prior to this, okay? And if you've read your Bible, you know that Moses, all right, and, and Elijah, they were really significant men in the story of God, all right? So Moses, for example, he, he penned the majority of, of the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch, all right? Which really means just book in five parts. So, so you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all right? Moses wrote these. And, and here's what you're to think of when you, when you think about Moses, that he is the guy that God gave us the law through, all right? So you think of the law, you think of the Ten Commandments, right? And he gives us more than 600 laws throughout the Pentateuch. And, and here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses, guys, I want you to understand this, Moses represents the law. Now, Elijah, on the other hand, represents the prophets of the Old Testament, all right? That he's one of the greatest prophets that God used to shape the world and prepare the world for the Savior and the Christ who was to come. And so with these two guys, guys, you have the Old Testament law and you have the Old Testament prophets coming together and they're with Jesus. And guys, here's what you need to know. The law and the prophets of the Old Testament, guys, they're all about Jesus. They were given to us and the entire world to point us to Jesus, the Savior, the Christ. If you want to write down Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, this is what Jesus says. Right? He says this, he says, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather, what did he do? He says, I came to fulfill them. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets that God gave us. The law and the prophets are all about Jesus. And when you think about the law, guys, the law shows us how sinful and broken and hopeless we are. That you look at the Ten Commandments, just those ten, and you realize not one of us is capable of following those Ten Commandments. We, we're broken, messed up, jacked up people. We can't even do 10 things right, right? And we look at that, and it's not, to get, it's not to, for us to be like, oh my gosh, I'm so terrible. Well, I mean, actually, it kind of is to be, you're so terrible. But it's not to be in despair. It's to point us to hope, to Jesus. It's to say you need a Savior because you can't do it. You cannot do it right. And in the midst of this, in the midst of our inability to live up to the law, Jesus enters into human history as the God-man, the Christ. He lives a perfect life without sin so that the law could be fulfilled. And that condemnation and separation from God isn't the final word for us because Jesus is the perfect Savior. 
He's the Christ. He's God in flesh. And because that's true, we're able to do what the prophets then commanded us to do. What did the prophets do in the Old Testament? They came and they said what? Repent. Turn. And because Jesus is who he says he is, he's the Christ, we're able to do that. We're able to turn away from God, receive grace in mercy, in hope, and have forgiveness. And so what we have, guys, in this glorious moment is the law and the prophets coming together to be with Jesus. And so when we ask that question again, the identity of Jesus, the, the Advent question, who is this kid? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Once again, it's revealed to us. He's the glory of God. And he's made manifest, invisible to us all. Now, all of this is happening, right? So a ton of stuff, right? Peter's watching this and he's just like, oh my gosh, he's even gonna say something like, hey, should I just like build a tent? Because this is kind of a cool moment. You guys all just wanna stay here? No, okay. If you're like Peter, find comfort. And Peter just says a bunch of dumb things all the time, right? And some of us are like that. We just see something, we're like, speak. This is Peter. But I'm not gonna even go into this, but all this happens. Peter is watching this and being like, what the heck is going on? And then look what happens in verse 35. God the Father's voice breaks in. And verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying what? This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So Peter confesses that he's the Christ. Then God the Father breaks in and says, this is actually the Christ. This is my son, the chosen one. And when we hear this phrase, we, to put it in our day and age, like, I, like, like father, like son. This is what the Father is saying that this is Jesus, that he's like me. We're, we're actually one. We're the same. And he's saying, this is the chosen one that I've chosen to reveal my glory to the world and to save the world of sin. And once again, guys, this is an identity statement showing the divinity of Jesus, that he is in fact God. And guys, as I beat this horse dead, okay, you're getting it, right? You're like, I got it. Okay, can you move on to the next point? No, Here's, this, is, this is it. <laughs> this is the most important thing that we can ever know. And as, we, as we're getting into this, guys, Jesus is not just another good man who's lived in our world. You need to know that. He's not even, as other religions will falsely tell you, just a prophet. He's not. He's not just a mere man. He's not just a, a teacher. He's not just fill in the blank. He's God. He said it, and he showed it. And so we either accept it or we dismiss him from everything. That's, that's it. He's the Savior that we all need. And this is what we're seeing through Peter's confession, through the Mount of Transfiguration. And I'll tell you this, guys, it doesn't matter what anyone else says about Jesus. It's about what God the Father says about Jesus. He says, this is my son. He's the chosen one. And I think this is really big for us here, right? In our city, in our world, there's so many conversations about who Jesus is, you know? And, and if you're not tethered to the truth, you can wander. And I think this is a key confession for intimacy and closeness and a relationship with God. That some of you, you may be even in this place where you don't really feel close to God. And I want you to know that if you're in that place where you don't feel close to God, it's not because God is deficient in his love and his presence. It's not because the gospel is deficient in any single way. But it's likely because our understanding of him and his gospel is deficient. In Advent, this season of these four weeks of just letting our heart prepare him room is an opportunity for us to stop on this confession that Jesus is the Christ and to go back and to start where life starts with Jesus and let that sink in. This is what it's all about. 
And, and the father speaks and he says, he's the chosen one. And what does he say? Look back at, back at verse 35. The father says what? Because of this, because Peter's confession is right, because he's my son and the chosen one, what does he say to do? Listen, listen to him. Referencing back to Luke chapter eight, listen and hear well. And guys, this is what we do as a church. Like if, if you're wondering, maybe like you're exploring doxa and saying, what, what is this church about? Like we, we open the Bible and we hear from God and we seek in our brokenness to respond to God the best that we can. This is what you do as a Christian. You go to Jesus before you go to anyone else, before you listen to anyone else, and you listen to his voice through the words of the Bible. This is when God speaks. And this is what we need to do. We open up our Bibles and we simply just listen to Jesus. And the Father says, listen to my son. And what does he say we should hear? Two things. Number one, look at verse 22. And Peter makes this statement that he's the Christ. Right after this, Jesus says, yeah, you're right. Now here's what Jesus says. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Because this is the gospel. This is literally the good news, right, that Luke says is for all people, everybody. And guys, this is the gospel of hope. This is what everything is being built on. This is what we build our lives on, right, that, that we're created to be with God. Right, but because of sin and all of our lives and brokenness, we've, we've gone away, we're separated, and there's no coming back without a mediator, without a savior. And so Christmas points us to, in the midst of hopelessness and eternity separated from God, hope breaks in, in the man Jesus, and he comes to us to rescue us. And what does he say? He needs to be killed. Well, why? Because there there's needs to be a, a punishment, a judgment for the sin of the world. And God becoming a man is the only way that that punishment can be fulfilled. And so Jesus, he goes to the cross and he says, I need to be killed. I need to die for you in your place in order that you can have hope for a future. And not just to be killed, but go back. What does he say in verse 22? To be killed and then raised. There's a bunch of people that have maybe claimed to be God and then were killed and they just still exist in the ground, right? But Jesus doesn't exist in the ground. I mean, you wonder why, why don't we know where Jesus was buried? Because no one cares, right? Because he's not there. You don't go back and you celebrate an empty tomb, right? People don't know because they don't care because he's rose from the dead. And in raising from the dead, he conquered sin, death, and hell to give us a way to come back to the Father. This is the gospel. This is the good news for all people that has culminated, that has made reality through the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the Advent season says, stop and remember that. Remember and the second thing that we're to listen to, verse 30. Behold, Mount of Transfiguration again. Behold, these two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, verse 31, who appeared in glory and they spoke of his departure. I told you to circle that because that's really important, okay? This departure that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And, and we're told that we're to listen to Jesus' words about his departure. And if we're all honest, like this is probably one of those verses in the Bible that you read and you're like, I have literally no idea what that says. But when someone says that's really significant, you're like, hmm, yeah, I bet it is, right? But this is what we need, you need to understand, like this is huge. Because we know as we learn to, to read the Bible, we know that everything in this book is actually profitable for us. It's, it's good for us. And so there's something good in this passage that, that is for us. So what the heck is this talking about? Guys, the word here for departure in the original Greek literally means exodus. 
All right, so write Exodus right next to that because this is big. And the word Exodus, guys, is a word that is at the very heart of God's plan for us. And it's a word that really encapsulates God's plan and what he's all about for us as his people. And when we rightly understand this word, it causes hope in worship to just erupt in our lives. Because this word Exodus is not just the title of a book in the Old Testament. All right, it's not even just a, a word that we find in the Bible, but it's the very message. Hear that, guys. It is the very message of the Bible, that we have a God who is all about giving us exodus. And exodus literally means, it means exit, exit or departure, but best put, it means a way out. It's a way out. Exodus is all about a God-given escape and way out so that we can actually pursue him. And when you look at the Old Testament book of Exodus in chapter 14, which is the account of the, the Red Sea crossing, we see perhaps like the climax of the Exodus story. If you remember that story, the Israelites, they're in bondage, they're in slavery, they're being killed, they're in bad situation in Egypt. God breaks in, he brings them out. He gives them a way out, an Exodus, and brings them out of Egypt. The Egyptian army is, is trying to follow them to kill them. What happens? The miraculous parting of the Red Sea. The Israelites travel through the Red Sea and they're saved. And it's hard, guys, to overstate the overall importance of the Red Sea crossing for the rest of the Bible. All right, Alec Matir, who's an Old Testament scholar, says that there's at least two dozen other references to the Red Sea crossing in the Old Testament and innumerable allusions to it in the New Testament. I'll give you a couple. For example, in the New Testament, Matthew says about Jesus, he says, out of Egypt I called my son. All right, and here what he's doing is he's quoting Hosea chapter 11, which is referencing the Exodus. And so in Hosea... He's pointing to Israel. So Matthew is making a direct connection between Jesus' work on the cross and the Old Testament exodus and the Red Sea crossing. And then if you fast forward in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3 or 4, it says that Jesus was the greater Moses that we talked about. Right? And then in, in, that Moses really, in fact, points us to Jesus. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, you can look at this later, it says that by faith, the Israelites passed through the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians couldn't do it because of why? because they didn't have faith. And so it's very clear that Hebrews chapter 11, guys, is talking about Christian faith, and it's using the Red Sea crossing as a paradigm for us to understand this idea of faith. And so when we get to Luke chapter 9, and we're reading about this conversation about his departure, it seems like Jesus is talking about his death, which he is, except the word that he uses is exodus. And guys, here's what this all means. As Luke is saying, that Jesus was going to accomplish in Jerusalem on the cross as he died was going to be the ultimate exodus for all people who come to him. That Jesus is, is the ultimate Red Sea crossing to give us a way out of death, to give us a way out of slavery, to give us a way out of bondage. This is what Jesus does. It's all about him. Now you might ask, a way out of what? Guys, it's a way out of sin. It's a way out of slavery to sin that just kills us. It's a way out of our eternal separation from God, which is just like the eternal conscious reality of hell. It's a way out of that. It's a way out of addiction. It's a way out of loneliness. It's a way out of helplessness. It's a way out of hopelessness. But guys, I want you to know that what we're seeing here, the beginning of Advent, is we have a great king of hope. Because no matter where you find yourself when it comes to, to sin, to life circumstances, you have a king. Jesus is the Christ. He's king. And because of that, we have hope. Because the reality is, is if you're not dead, God's not done. 
He sits on the throne. He's in control of everything. And there's hope for all of us. Cicero said that while there's breath, there's life. There's a chance to come to Jesus and find this. And Luke is saying, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's all about. And then Jesus says, okay, this is me. And he says this to wrap it up. Verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, Jesus is saying, okay, you're hearing all this stuff. Peter confesses me as the Christ. There's good news. I'm the ultimate way out. I'm the exodus. You're hearing this. Who wouldn't want to respond to this good news if it's actually true? He said, if you want to come after me, what do you do? Let him deny himself. Underline this part. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is saying that I'm going to give you everything. Just give me one thing your life. And here, guys, Jesus specifies what is required of those who want to come after him, who want to be his disciples. And if you notice, right, that just like Jesus, the shadow of the cross just looms over them, just as it looms over Jesus. And in verse 23, Jesus says that his people who are marked with the love, the grace, and the forgiveness that comes through his death, his life, and his resurrection, and his glory, must, like Jesus, what what do they do? They deny themselves, they take up their cross, and they go the same way that Jesus went. And so I want to tell you this, guys. If you're hearing this and we want to respond to Jesus and follow Jesus, here are three aspects of coming to Jesus that we sing that song, O come all ye faithful. We, we sing that song, and it's just like, oh, yeah, I'll come all you faithful. Good, I want to see a, a baby, right? No, he's, he's saying, you want to come to me, here's how you approach me, right? This is how you come after me. Number one, he says, deny yourself. Because in, in our world of, of self-indulgence, right, I mean, this is just completely radical. Deny yourself. Why would I ever deny myself anything, right? We, we think about this, like, deny my, no, I want to do my own thing. But this makes me think of deny yourself. It makes me think of Isaiah 55, where, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, but my ways are higher and better than yours, and my thoughts are higher and better than your thoughts. Because we deny ourselves and our ways, and we follow the ways of King Jesus, because we know that he's king, that he's God, that he's Christ. And he knows what's good for us, and he knows how to bring us salvation. It's through him and his ways. And so we deny, it's not so much about me anymore. It's all about what makes in my life the greatest impact for the glory of God. We live for the glory of God because Jesus is the glory of God. He says, deny yourself. But then secondarily, look at, take up your cross daily. And in the first century, right, we don't get this, right? We, we wear crosses and we have tattoos and all this stuff. But in the first century in Rome, the cross was just a terrible instrument of, of cruelty, of pain, of shame, and it was used to just punish criminals. That Romans wouldn't even crucify their own people because it was too barbaric. And so the, the cross was just a symbol of death, and it was ultimately a symbol of submission to, to Roman authority. So much so to demonstrate this, just as you see Jesus in the passion scene, right? That to, when they were going to be crucified, they made them pick up their cross because as people watched people walk through the streets with their cross on their shoulder, they realized that they're under the authority of Rome that Rome has complete control over their life. And it was a symbol of of authority and submission, but it was also a symbol of death. And so when Jesus says to take up your cross, it's a symbol of submitting to God and giving him our total, saying, God, you have total claim on my life. I'm denying myself for your good because you're God. 
and I'm going to take up my cross. And Luke in, introduces this. He's the only one that says daily. And as he expands this, the cross moves from, from this, this physical death to this metaphor of just daily self-denial. That, guys, I don't know about you, but it's not always easy to follow Jesus, right? Because while God has, like, squashed sin, it's still alive, and it's difficult to live like Jesus. I, I find that in my own life. And so every day it's a decision. And we daily take up our cross and I say, okay, I'm going to deny myself what I want to do. And I know that this isn't from God. I know this is not the walking in the ways of God. And I deny myself. I take up my cross and I follow him. I choose Jesus. Because why? The only reason that it makes sense is because he is the Christ. He's the king of hope. And he says just to follow. And I want you to know this, guys, as we, as we get into Christmas. Some of you, you you've been told this idea that, that the Christian life is about life. It's about abundant life, and God wants to bless you and all that stuff, and there's some elements of truth in that for sure. But the Christian life is about death. It's about dying to sin. It's about dying to perversion. It's about dying to self. It's about dying to all of that that is not of God. And the whole paradox of the Christian faith is that death precedes life, that no one is really a fully alive until they've mastered the art of dying, taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following Jesus. Follow him. So here's how I'll end. And I want you to hear this. It's so important, okay? Because before Jesus asks you to do anything, he does everything for you. That before he asks you to come to him, he actually comes to you. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. He comes to you. Before he asks you to deny yourself, he denies himself. Philippians chapter 2, we see this idea that Jesus' humility, that he put aside his rights as God. He didn't lose his divinity, but he thought about you taking the form of a man and dying. He denied himself. Before he asked you to take up the cross, he takes up his cross. Why? For you. Before he asked you to follow him, he follows the will of the Father into the darkest moment in the history of the world, the crucifixion of Jesus, where a perfect person, nothing wrong, was brutally murdered. For you. Because this is what we remember. This is how we prepare our hearts for this coming Jesus that we celebrate. Let me pray. God, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the ability that we have to just to even gather here, open it up, and just freely talk about you. And God, it's my prayer that, um, yeah, as I did my best to, to faithfully teach your word today, that you would just, through your Holy Spirit, light up the words of scripture that you inspired to be written and help it to land in our hearts do your job and what you do of, of convicting, of encouraging, of challenging, of loving. And let us all, as we reflect on this, and we do what Luke says or in Luke 8, Jesus, you tell us to hear well. I pray that as we have heard you speak today, that you would just allow us to continue to hear the words that you have for us in order that we may see you, Jesus, that we could cherish you. So thanks for, for coming to get us. Thanks that there's hope because of who you are. And so just open up our eyes, and even as we sing these songs, God, let it be just an overflow of gratitude and worship.
We ask this in Jesus' name.